we see that the history of Jesus, Jesus himself, is our life. The church year, the week, and the day simply are there to remember Jesus. And whoever lives in the church year lives in Jesus' suffering and in his entire life. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills and Zell and Heidi here. Joining us today, the Reverend Adam Kuntz. Gentlemen, how are you? Very well. How are you? Good, Adam. Good to have you back. It's been a little while. understand that you've made a bit of a move since we last met? Yeah. I moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana to start a position teaching New Testament at the seminary here. So just getting ready for the upcoming quarter. All right, very good. How is the weather in Fort Wayne currently? <laughs> Probably fairly similar to your own. <laughs> Looks like it's going to rain horribly soon, but it seems to do that often in Fort Wayne. So, um, you know, nothing out of the ordinary. It is true. Our forecasts are pretty much just the same. The Almanac, we could just use it and be, <laughs> be just fine. Zelwyn, how are you up there? I haven't been cast out of paradise like Adam has, but I am doing... <laughs> <laughs> Doing well. I mean, <laughs> things are kind of still on the cool end this year. It was kind of an unusual year, and the tomatoes are really starting to ripen, so looking forward to a good harvest. But but it it's it's been good. Very good. Well, we are continuing on our discussion of Leia, uh, Wil- Wilhelm Leia's the pastor in, uh, specifically, and we've reached the section on liturgics. Now, liturgics is something that we confessional Lutheran types actually like to talk about quite a bit. Why is a discussion of liturgics important, gentlemen? Basically because it is simply something that the pastor has to do, whether he likes it or not. And I think maybe before talking about Leia, it's helpful to say that we're not discussing over much today small things. No, no, the the crossing of thumbs and right. the clockwise or counterclockwise rotations. We'll save that for an episode some 15, 20 years in the future. <laughs> but <laughs> but if you're go- if you're going to be leading a worship service on a regular basis, you should probably think about it. And I think that often when we talk about liturgics, it becomes sort of a hobby. And, you know, not everyone is interested in model railroading, you know, just to pick a, a random, totally random <laughs> example of a hobby. And if, so if someone else is discussing model railroading, you know, my eyes are going to kind of glaze over. I'm not particularly interested. Liturgics is part of Christian pastoral theology simply because public worship is a necessary part of belonging to the body of Christ. So because the body of Christ engages in public worship, the pastor in Christ will take care, will give thought to, will pay attention to the circumstances, the times, all the stuff that Leah is going to talk about. Certainly. And when it comes to the discipline of liturgics or the study of liturgics, it's important to remember that every Christian denomination has some philosophy of liturgy, whether they realize it or not. And the question is, you know, what does our liturgy communicate? What does it inform? Why do we worship the way that we do? You know, does our theology lead to our worship? And in what way does our worship inform our theology? And that's kind of what we have here in in Leia's discussion. And as you say, the minutiae, things like that, I mean, nothing wrong with discussing them, but that can't become just an ends in and of itself. 
Yeah, that that's where the hobbyist can take over and can know, you know, how were thumbs crossed in Magdeburg and how were thumbs crossed in Rome and how were thumbs crossed in Milan. And that's totally fine. It's just not generally helpful for most pastors. Sure. I think for a lot of people, a general overview of principles and some basic instruction in you should do it this way would suffice before we get into the model railroading territory. <laughs> certainly, certainly. And, you know, there are sources we can suggest if you want to check that out. So so the first aspect of liturgics that Leia discusses is going to be time. What is sacred time? How do we reckon it? How does it order the church? Yeah, sacred time is not an evacuation from normal time. So I think a lot of times when people talk about church, they'll say something like, I get recharged there, or I can kind of take a break from everyday life. And that's very understandable on a human level that church feels different, especially liturgical church, from the rest of life, right? An example might be the non-existence of screens in most liturgical churches, whereas in pretty much everything else in everyday life, there are screens. But Leah is actually saying that the liturgy, as it is set up through the church's year and the church's day, is an investment of all of our time with the life of Jesus, which is why the church year is structured around Jesus's life. So he has a rather elaborate image toward the end of his section on time that puts Jesus, the life of Jesus, as the sun, and then orbiting around those things are the other two elements of sacred time, which he identifies as the natural year and the history or the calendar of the saints. But the whole thing is orbiting around the life of Jesus so that the Christian and the Christian church are centering their entire experience of time, whether it's a Wednesday or a Sunday or a Friday or whatever, around what occurred with the Lord on that day and at that time of year. Right. And it's regularly a time during the week set aside to this. And then those days are set aside in commemoration of specific events. It is a it is as normal a part of the Christian's life as getting up and brushing their teeth or going to work or something like that, or at least it at least it ought to be. This is why we put such an emphasis on the Lord's Day here at A Word Fitly Spoken, simply because if we begin to neglect the Lord's Day and neglect worship, then we begin to miss out on large chunks of what we consider sacred time, correct? Yeah, and I I think that you can understand this if you have had and dropped habits or grew up with something and then dropped it. You can understand how easily your sense of time can change such that if you invest yourself in some kind of habit, it completely alters your experience of your day. To give you kind of a strange example, I guess, in the town I grew up in, the fire alarm from the volunteer fire department went off at 6 p.m. every day. I don't really know why. It just it just did. And it was a storm warning test, Adam. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, there were like no tornadoes. What's the matter with you? It's the same way I lived. We had the same thing. And that's what they always told me. Like, I, all right, I guess, I guess we're in Kansas all of a sudden. I don't know how right. that happened. No but. tornadoes, no hurricane. I mean, it's Appalachia. Like, living there is punishment enough. There's no natural disaster. So. Says the guy on a flat plane in Fort Wayne now, but go well, on. Well, yeah, right. <laughs> right. So that, that, that's something that growing up I thought was completely normal. 
and now if I heard something like that, I would think that something was wrong. I mean, my sen- my experience of the day is completely altered. I think something that's a little weird when you read Leia, not weird in Leia, but weird about us, is that our experience of time is generally unsanctified. Certainly, yeah. There might be prayer at certain times of day, extemporaneous or written or whatever, but the experience of time where time is marked by events in the life of Jesus at noon, I'm going to recall the crucifixion each day, things like that that are in the church's prayer books. That's really absent for most of us, whether we're ordained or not. Do you think that we lost that when we lost the liturgy of the hours that that took away as Lutherans, that that took away a lot of this? I mean, granted the laity are not going to be participating in that quite as much, but at least there are opportunities within the church to experience these services. I mean, it's literally a marking of time with the remembrance of events. Yeah, no, that's right. I, th- I, th- I think that's right. And even even certain material echoes of the Liturgy of the Hours, like Leia mentions the ringing of bells at 11 a.m., which, mm-hmm. w- which, which was a mistaken estimation of when the crucifixion occurred. Nonetheless, it was a remembrance of the crucifixion. If you live in Leia's village or the villages that he had planted from afar in Michigan and what's now Michigan, you're hearing those things every day. It, you know, the, the, the work day is centered around not an arbitrary fire alarm or your phone going off or whatever, but church bells recalling the crucifixion. Yeah. We even have stories like that from the early days of my congregation here with all of the Germans in the mid late 1800s, when they get over here and begin the church, it's in the church records of certain times of the day when the bells would be rung and things like yeah. that, when they, wow. when they eventually got a bell, you right. know, had to save up for that. <laughs> right, right. But what's interesting, though, is in a lot of these cases, with a lot of liturgical things like this, the sacred meaning is lost over time if we forget to teach it. And And so it's like, okay, you get used to the bell ringing, but even in more overt examples, something like, okay, I get like I'm a school child, I get two weeks off at the end of December. Why? Right. Well, it's Christmas. Well, what's Christmas? Well, we, we don't know. And even, even the high holy days often are not reckoned as sacred things. The, the meaning gets lost. And that's always the danger when it comes to liturgy is that we forget as pastors sometimes to catechize based upon that, or at least just simply say, oh, by the way, here's why we do this. Yeah. And it's, it's an easy thing to do. But I think that that gives some fodder to the people who say, well, this is just dead ritual. It doesn't mean anything, or or even worse, they'll accuse it of being superstitious. Right. And it's like, no, 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 no. Just because we forget sometimes why we've done it doesn't mean we should throw it all away for the sake of, I don't know, skinny jeans and a fog machine. Uh, that, <laughs> you know, one one manner of worship can serve the Christian throughout the day months, years, throughout a lifetime, one is really, frankly, a bit consumeristic and a bit fleeting, just like secular time. Yeah, Sacred time is building toward eternity, and secular time is just simply sands running out in the hourglass. Yeah. No, that I mean, that that's a great way to say it, because I think when we're talking about imbuing time with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus— we are identifying time that will now also fill our lives through the liturgy, whether it's of the hours or the communion service or whatever it may be. 
now our lives are suffused with an eternal life that otherwise would make our lives, as you said, just grains of sand running out. I mean, there, there's no other way to view time. And it's telling to me that a lot of people think of time as part of the fall, whereas right. time is actually a part gift. of creation. Yeah, it's part of creation. It's a gift. The marking of time is a gift of, is it is it day four off the top of my head? Because the heavenly bodies are four signs and seasons. Right. Yeah, we, that's how we are designed by nature. It's not part of the fall. We grow weary in time as right. a result of the fall. But no, we, man was made to mark the times and the seasons yeah. and the days. Call back to our previous episode on technology uh, when I had mentioned the a refinement of the clock, which was originally done for the sake of sacred time, you know, to help mark the liturgy of right. the hours. Right. And so I think I think that's telling, too, that it's become so separated that we think of time as just kind of running past and we forget that it is really truly, as you say, a gift of God. Certainly. So within sacred time, then, we have these moments throughout the day that can be marked. Uh, we also have let's say, the high holy days and then the lesser feasts, what would Leah have to say about those two? Leah, Leah briefly goes over the origin of the church year, which by his, by his time, that feels weird to say that, but by <laughs> his time, they are actually fairly aware in a scholarly sense of the growth of the church year out of Easter. The growth of Christmas is kind of a separate story, and it's an uneven story. There are other resources you can turn to besides Leia for a complete overview of that. But basically, the church year growing out of Easter and then Christmas slash Epiphany, which is really a unified festival in the beginning, and the penitential seasons that precede each of those. You have to remember that contrary to a lot of modern discussion, Advent was intended to be Lenten in feeling. Right. Um, that Lent and Advent grow backwards from. Press F for a purple Advent. Right. <laughs> and, and even that, you know, if you, if you think about pre Lent in the historic church year, the equivalent of that would be the end of the church year, what's now kind of the, the tail end of Trinity in, in the one year lectionary, which concerns the last things, is intended as part of the preparation for. For Advent, the whole thing being considered St. Martin's Lent, dating from November 11th. So that's where the, that's where the church year comes out of. Leia's very frank about the fact that the, the semester of the church, that is the half of the church year between Trinity 1 and Trinity you know, 25, 26, 27, is lacking in shape. And I know mm -hmm. that some people would disagree with him about that, but I, I do have to kind of agree on that. Maybe this is just my lack of knowledge, but there is a formlessness and I, I'm not content with Vatican II to just call it ordinary time. There is a kind of formlessness to what we're in right now. I don't know if you guys agree with that, but. Well, it certainly seems more so if you're on the the new lectionary. I mean, it is it is true. I just think to a lesser degree in the historic lectionary, but there is some truth to it. It's not as coherent and cohesive as the rest of the of the calendar. Right. And with that said, you know, Leia does have some things to say about the ancient lectionaries. Yeah. He, um, he's, he's very dismissive of what he calls modern attempts to create a lectionary. This would include in his time, if the listener has a copy of the Lutheran hymnal. Am I right about this, Zelwyn? There are 
several different lectionaries in the middle of that that you could use to preach on. At least in the um, in the agenda, there are for sure. The, yeah, yeah. There's like there's the Eisenach Gospels series. There's right. the canonical right. conference. To say nothing of the weird things we did with the Old Testament, you know, just trying to nail that down. <laughs> Wait, are we supposed to read that in church? I wasn't. I think <laughs> I hear it's all law. Zellman, yeah, Zellman is going to kick me off the podcast now. <laughs> but yeah, so there were attempts in the 19th century. People were kind of bored with what is now diplomatically called the one year, what is less diplomatically called the historic lectionary. Was I just accused of not being diplomatic? <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's all right. Time. Yeah, that's fine. But he's he's he is talking about I I think he he uses the plural, but he seems to generally be talking about the historic lectionary in the sense that he's saying you can see a progression of thought throughout it. So like an example of this would be the first time that you go through the one year lectionary, you might be kind of confused as to why right after Easter you're jumping all around the farewell discourse in John's gospel. All of that is preparing you for the reception of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. There, there is a great deal of thought. The progression of thought is very interesting. And Leia's contention is that that comes out of the church's experience of time and also its own history. So its struggles, martyrdom, expansion, testing, whereas like a, a big one in the 19th century, you can find Missouri Synod guys preaching on this, is the Eisenach Gospel Series. It's kind of an interesting idea, but it's just kind of an idea put down on paper and then someone ran with it. So Leia does not look at liturgics as an abstract discipline of reflection, but rather as a reflection of the church's experience of the death and life of Jesus as the church goes through time with Jesus. So he's got this really stark distinction between what proceeds out of the church's life and what is merely reflection on the church's life. And he definitely has a preference for the former. And you see that with the lectionaries, with his discussion of ancient versus modern lectionaries. Very good. All right, guys, we're coming up on the first break. Any last words about sacred time? I think that if you're interested in what we've talked about just in this section, one place to go would be just to look at some of the stuff inside the hymnal. Don't You don't even have to buy a whole separate book yet. Just to look at the stuff inside the hymnal that is not the divine service settings, the various one, two, three, four, five. Look at the stuff after that. See how that could be used in your day. That's a place to start so that your day can kind of be reclaimed from the grasp of your smartphone. <laughs> Very good. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. The mission of Word Fitly Spoken is to put the Word of God at the center of all of life. To find out more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org.
We are back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, Adam Kuntz, Zell and Heidi talking Wilhelm Leia and liturgics. So we talked about sacred time, the ordering of the Christian life around the events of the life of Christ, how that informs the church and how the church is poorer when she loses it. Indeed, how the world is when we refuse to reckon the sacred time. And now we come to the next facet here, which is sacred space. If we're going to have sacred hours, and especially those outside the home, then we need a place to worship. So what does Leia have to say about sacred space? Gentlemen? This is definitely the most esoteric section of his chapter on liturgics. So that's a fair warning for the listeners. But his beginning is that, you know, yes, anything could be used for worship. Okay, so the contention that you know, you don't have to care where you worship or what you use to worship, what the materials are in the church or something. He's going to concede that at the outset. Yes, that's fine. You could with the desert fathers worship in a cave. That's that's okay. But why would you? And he's going to start with something that has that has occurred to me quite often is that you have this. This is anecdotal. I don't I don't have a study to prove this, but what seems to me is a decrease in the expense put into houses of worship as the size and luxuriousness of the average American home has ballooned in the same time period. So in the 1930s, for instance, you could have a very ornate Gothic church built by people who, relative to many folks today, were indubitably poor some of them, especially if they're, you know, I don't know, Italian Catholics are actually building the church themselves out of marble, right? While living in, say, a row home in Baltimore or something that's built out of brick and has not a lot of square footage and they're raising a family of eight in it. So not that you have to live in a cramped row home, but there does seem to be an inverse proportion between what we lavish on ourselves and what is lavished on the house of God. And interestingly, Leia notes the same thing in his own time and place. Certainly. I mean, and that's a that's an excellent point. I suppose the imaginary objector, or not so imaginary these days, is going to say, well, that could that money not be given to some other cause? <clears throat> Thus echoing the Apostle <laughs> Judas. But right. yeah, but that's typically the argument you see. Well, they should have put the money into their into their into their families or into their homes instead of into this church. This is this is idolatry of the building or something like that. And I right. suppose if if their spiritual orientation was so, that could be the case. And I don't think it's simply a case of, well, see, they were legalists. They thought if they didn't give all this money, then they wouldn't receive absolution or something like that. We always assume these ulterior motives because we don't believe in the new man in Christ. Yeah. And And so people, out of sincere devotion to their God, are going to try to give him the best that they can and make a home for him that is as close as they can come suitable for him. Like you say, desert fathers, you can worship in a cave. You could worship in, in a home as the early church did. But why would you, when you have other alternatives, why, where did we get this idea that somehow building a monument to God is not giving him glory? I think it's also interesting that you can find idolatry of the building even when the building is objectively unattractive. Right. A yeah, you can yeah, you can idolize a pole barn. 
Right, right. And so the danger in idolatry surrounding church property, like all idolatry, comes out of the heart and does not have to do with the exterior things. Because I think there's also a reality that when you have something beautiful, whether it was built in your generation or you're the fourth generation in this congregation or whatever it may be, you have a much greater sense of stewardship. So not of yourself as an owner, or as a worshiper, but as someone who is passing something down in the same way that someone who is caring for a historic site does. When Notre Dame burned down, there was, or, or, or the roof burned anyway, there were people who said, you know, well, we, we shouldn't have to care because the church is the people of God. It's not the building. And yes, I get that. I, you know, I've read the Bible, but the reality that the people of God have given beautiful things, and in the case of most European cathedrals, began to build what they did not see completed. Right, yeah, centuries of, of work, literally centuries. And it's kind of like this what we see with homes, though. It's interesting, a lot of those row homes that we kind of made fun of a few minutes ago are still in pretty good shape, at least still standing. Assuming the tenants still, are there. still yeah. standing, yeah, <laughs> that's what I mean here. They're still standing, yeah. um, but the McMansions today, which are larger, are not going to last twenty years, twenty five years. Yeah, mm. um, that that's that's a, there's a there's an impermanency to modern architecture, and it extends to church architecture. Where one again, now we're back to um, kind of fads in worship, but it's immediately dated if you're not careful. There's right. a timelessness to to classical religious architecture. Secondly. They're quite literally impermanent because they're not built to last. You look at the the great you know winged buttresses of of the old Gothic cathedrals and how they 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 have been here for for centuries now. Whereas, you know your your church in the in an old sports stadium or an old Burlington coat factory or whatever, uh, what's it going to look like? <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, and you know it's yeah. and it does matter. I mean, we're not. That this is not the same as storing up treasures on earth. This is leaving a legacy to your children, and especially right. to to your children in the faith. Right. And 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 again, I could see somebody saying, "Well, yeah, but we're not supposed to uh, live as if we have a tomorrow or something like that." And it's like, how far can we stretch Bible verses until they break? Right. You know, d- d- they would say, "Does God want some elaborate building?" Well, okay, He did actually draw up blueprints for one. And commanded it be built. Now, while and, and Leah is going to mention this too, while the Old Testament temple is not a one to one with our church buildings, I do think there's there's some information there for us, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Le- Leah does trace essentially a one to one correspondence between right. the elements of New Testament worship and the Old Testament tabernacle, and then right. Temple. But I mean, they literally can't be one yeah. because you're not killing a red heifer. You're not before, you're, before you dedicate your cornerstone. You're you're not killing a red heifer, and one one of the issues that Leah does not bring up, but I think architecturally is kind of an interesting thing, is that Leah does not want there to be much of a separation, much of a separation between the altar of God and the people of God, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why Leah is against what in the West was called a rude screen, and in the and in the East is an iconostasis. But what's interesting is. The Lutheran churches in Germany and Scandinavia actually preserve that separation much more faithfully than, say, the Church of England does. Certainly. Um, I mean, there's a few reasons for that. Do we want to get into that? 
Go ahead. I mean, we we still have altar rails. That's going to be something that modern Roman Catholics are going to notice when they go into an LCMS church, is that generally speaking, no matter how modern the church may be, there is generally an altar rail, and most of us still kneel to receive communion. Right, if you can, right. Right. So, of course, with the Church of England, there is a greater Reformed influence. So they're going to be tearing things down more. You know, it ebbs and flows during the English Reformation. Uh, once you get into Scandinavia, you know, Lutheranism holds on and still very traditional. Part of it, too, is frankly architecture, permanent architecture that it's, it's hard to remove things sometimes. And, I, and we want to kind of make this into this is some kind of triumphant confession in every congregation. Sometimes it's like, this is going to be really expensive and destructive to remove. We can't get it out of here. And, and so, they, so they leave it. And yeah. again, yeah. sometimes it's, it, it is for theological reasons. Other times it's for practical reasons. But I don't think we can discount the Reformed influence in England. Right. Because to be clear, a, ru- a rude screen like an iconostasis is a collection of images usually carved in the West with a, with a, with a crucifixion scene on top of that. That's the rude. Yeah, I mean, occasionally you'll see them where they're less ornate, but... Right. For the most part, and, and these are so so the Calvinists are not going to want that there because they understand, right. or they used to understand. Sorry, new Calvinists, but they used to understand the second commandment to prohibit the use of graven images or even the making of of graven images. Right. And so, in accordance with their belief, they took them out of churches and destroyed them, as one would do with what you perceive to be an idol. There's both a caution and an admonition there, I suppose. But in an encouragement, I know, no, we should always be smashing idols. The question is always, what is an idol? But yeah, that doesn't take hold in the Lutheran churches uh, for some time, although one could argue it does creep in in places and continues to creep in. I, I think I think one place that Leah is definitely arguing with somewhat implicitly is the placement of the pulpit, which in which in significant portions of German Lutheranism begins to be placed over top of the altar in some, in some way that mm-hmm. the pulpit becomes central to the two church architecture. And Leah is adamant that in the Lutheran church, the altar is central, not the pulpit. You know, you have an interesting couple of things going on here with, with Leah. He wants the rude screen removed, right? Which is a particularly mm-hmm. Protestant idea. And then, at the same time, he wants the altar to remain central, which is a very much a traditional Catholic, uh, you know, universal understanding of this. So, in Leia, you might, you might actually have the perfect embodiment of what it is to be a Lutheran, right there. <laughs> you know, because because you do see uh, Reformation oriented ideas, and then you see, of course, very historic and traditional ideas. I just find that interesting. But what do you yeah. guys think about the altar as central versus the pulpit as central? Zellwin, you got any thoughts? Yeah, that's a that's a great question because Zellwin acts like he's actually indecisive about this. Go on. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it it's my uh my upper western way. So <laughs> there is there is something to be said for a central pulpit and the the centrality of preaching in the the worship service. Yet at the same time, I can understand Leia's point about the, the altar being where it is. So I don't know. I mean, I've, I've seen churches and there's a there's a very few churches in the Missouri Synod that have central pulpits. There's not many of them, but there are a few. And I do think that it is it is a very 
there's something good that could come out of it is all I, is all I have to say. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it is uncommon enough that you're quite shocked though, when you do see it. Right. Right. I, I can only think of two off the top of my head and both of them were in Texas. So there's one church in Fort Wayne, I believe that has I one. Think, I think Ascension. Ascension. Has, Ascension. Ascension Fort yeah. Wayne has a central. Yeah. Now we would all agree that wherever you put the pulpit, it ought to be elevated for yeah. a couple of reasons. One simply acoustics and the other is going to be, you know, it is the word being preached. So you've got pulpit lectern. And unfortunately we're seeing a trend where people just want to ignore either of those. <laughs> and just kind of walk around. Yeah. And, the, and that the minister remains in the pulpit. And the reason for that is not a kind of personal stiffness. It's because it is one of the places from which he exercises his office and this will come into in the third segment when we discuss liturgical conduct, is that when he's preaching, when he's catechizing, when he's serving at the altar, whatever he's doing, the minister is inside an office. Mm -hmm. It is not the enforcement of his personality on the congregation, which I fear is what happens when the minister is outside the pulpit. Then certainly in, in the modern United States, it becomes simply a show. That's where people wander around stages. It's a TEDx talk. It's a stand-up comedy routine, but it's him. It's not the yeah. office. What's the deal with the unjust steward? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, right. yeah, it's one of my right. peeves with that newer Luther movie with Joseph Fiennes, where they've got him down when he's preaching just in front of the pews there. You can literally in one shot see the pulpit in the background. Right. You know, somebody's going to pop in and say, oh, and say probably something like, oh, no, Luther actually did that, in which case he ought to be ashamed of himself. He shouldn't have done that. But <laughs> right. he had this beautiful pulpit. I'm not convinced it happened, but you're like, come on, why do they got to have him down here like he's just some like he's just some mega yeah. church dude? Right. All right, guys, a few minutes left then. So Leah has a couple comments about space and about how we fill that space. So what does Leah have to say about space? Yeah, I mean, I think I think some of it is kind of intuitive, and it's almost ubiquitous. The altar should be above the nave, nave being where the congregation is, chancel being where the ministers and the altar are, generally speaking. It, this is kind of an interesting thing, because I see strong opinions expressed about this by people, and Leia is completely indifferent as to whether the choir is in front of the church or in the back of the church. <laughs> He thinks they should be elevated if they're in the back of the church, but wherever they are, they should be near the organ and any other instruments so that the music can issue from a single point of origin in the congregation. Kind of an interesting point. The thing that really is not intuitive and maybe won't make any sense to anyone, including the people on this podcast, is he wants there to be plenty of space in the church because he says that intimacy is impossible when the minister is too close physically to the congregation. Yeah, it's bizarre. It's a bizarre, <laughs> it's a bizarre thing to say. I, I tried to think of what he means by this, and maybe he means culturally, if there's too much intimacy. I don't, I'm, I'm leaning on Zelwyn to explain this to me. <laughs> if you're too physically close to someone, maybe for Leia culturally, that's all you can think about and you can't actually do the service. That could be it. It's still an odd construction. Anyway, we cut it. Yeah. I don't want to ethnically well, pigeonhole anyone on the call, but except me, right. but right. <laughs> right. well, I mean, in my own experience, like 
sometimes when I have gone into places on some of my preaching stations to be able to go in and preach, on occasion we've I've been in a space that's been relatively tight, yeah. and as a result, I'm basically preaching, you know, right across a table to someone. Yep, and yep. that that actually can be kind of distracting because yeah, no, that's you know because you yeah. know it, it it's so close together that like you say it just becomes uncomfortable the sermon right. as waterboarding right. <laughs> <laughs> well that i mean this this is yeah no you're right you're totally that's why i have never i've never delivered a full-fledged sermon to a shut-in and and maybe i should have but it just feels so artificial like so much of the liturgy is designed for a group in a room sufficient to that group. So, I mean, if you're just in kind of like a little old church and you're, you know, 10 feet from the first row of pews, that's one thing. But I I do get his, I do get the sense that it would be the very first service that we had for the mission church was in a living room. And certain parts of the liturgy felt really weird in somebody's living room. I don't know how else to say it. Sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's interesting you mentioned that too. That kind of ties it into also audio sermons, radio broadcasts, that sort of thing. How liturgically the church works better when you're actually in a church. It's it's never quite the same hearing a sermon over the radio or somebody teaching right. uh, over a podcast or YouTube or whatever or watching right. a service. It's never quite the same. And I realize that's almost an emotional or psychological argument, but I don't think anyone is going to dispute that, right. that, that, that there is a, a, a qualitative difference. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I, th- I think that, and Leah brings this up because he says that I, I'm making a psychological point, but I think if you want to think about that theologically, the fact that people are creatures and they have, they have physical limitations, they have cultural preferences, they have certain ways of experiencing life the pastor has to think about those things because you're, you're dealing with people on levels that don't all entirely have to do with, you know, article four of the Augsburg confession. So. Sure. A few minutes left in this segment, Leah mentions the house of God being overwhelmed by cheap and tawdry things. What does he mean by that? He means that you can find people using really nice things to have their afternoon snack cups that cost a lot of money, food that was expensive. And then you go into church and they're using the equivalent of Walmart everything. Everything is made out of coarse materials. Mm -hmm. Everything is cheap imitation wood. It's not even necessarily actually wood. It's everything is just kind of slightly, it's below the standards that they have in their own everyday life. And he sees this happening in the 19th century, not to speak of the 21st. And what's interesting is he says, if you ask people of the older generation, they can't give you any good ideas because they're the ones that basically started this. And he's referring <laughs> to the Enlightenment, right? But it's there's definitely, Leah definitely feels big generational tension with his elders. That's also an interesting thing to know. And I don't, I don't know if this is always the case in every society, but certainly in industrialized societies where life changes fairly rapidly in his time within a hundred years in our time, it's like within 10. 10. Yeah. Yeah. I'm scared of generation Z, but it's going to be fun when they come of age. (laughs) 
is that is that he he feels like he can't really trust people and and you'll see that these references throughout his liturgical section to you know younger guys are trying to try good things but they're being put down and if you ask people they'll just tell you that they're romanizing even when they're using pure lutheran agendas it's it's really an interesting thing and and just a little historical notice that what's what we call the common service in the united states is a late 19th century completely cut and pasted yep. reclamation of stuff from centuries earlier by men who had not experienced that service growing up. So in all of these endeavors, there's some there's some novelty, even in doing what you think was the best thing from 200 years ago. And the reason it's new is because no one living has ever done it. Well, all right, we are at break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all them that trust in Him. The book that sits on your shelf, The One Gathering Dust, word fitly spoken, asks you to once again take up and read. Hear the words of the only wise God and be saved. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Word Fitly, Willie Grills, Zelman Heidi, Adam Coons talking Leia on liturgic. So we talked about sacred time. We talked about sacred space. And now let's end our discussion with the Christian life as a whole, or the Christian's worship life as a whole. So where do we found a, a good summation of Christian worship in the Bible? Leia's, Leia's going to go directly to Acts 2 and the description of church life there, where the people are devoting themselves to the breaking of bread, the prayers, the apostles' teaching. He's going to draw all of this last section on worship life out of that Bible passage. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction we have often, or at least it's portrayed that way between Leah and Walter, for example and certain other Lutherans, there's a tendency for people to say that Acts is merely a historical book. It's just kind of descriptive, but not really proscriptive for what we should be doing. For Leah, no. Leah says, well, it appears that the early church was doing this. Maybe we should pay attention. And and that's a, you know, Acts is kind of a tricky book. Uh, When you go across the denominations, what does everyone, what does everyone do with it? But it does seem that Acts gives us a good description of what worship life is like. Now, it is going to develop naturally. That's that's fine. There's nothing wrong with natural development. We're going to go from house churches and sort of a continuation of temple worship eventually into our current understanding of church buildings and things like that. But we're going to see some things that regardless of whether you're in the current year in a faithful church building, or you're in Acts, 
at the very early days of the church, you're going to see some similarities. And what are those similarities going to be? The similarities are going to be the proclamation of the Word of God, the celebration of Holy Communion, which I think is what is meant in Acts 2 by the breaking of bread. Certainly. And significantly, there is a definite article on prayer, what's sometimes translated prayer there. So there's some set group of prayers that they're using. Yeah, the prayers in Acts 2. But this is only going to be natural for Jews at this time coming from synagogue worship. It's not an entirely foreign thing. Uh, There's something of a romanticized view that some primitivist Christians have. Certainly the primitivist restorationists, which we've talked about in previous episodes, the Mormon episodes, and the Second Great Awakening. Now, the Mormons are not primitivists, but they serve as a distinction between the two kinds of restorationists. But nevertheless, the primitivist is going to have this view of the church as anti-liturgical, as they understand the word liturgical, as not having much ceremony. And while the circumstances are rather humble, out of necessity, I don't think there's any way we can defend an idea that the early church isn't liturgical and isn't gathering around the Word and the body and blood of Christ. Now, even the Restorationist is going to say, or the Revisionist is going to say, yeah, they are gathering around the Word and around the Lord's Supper, but there's no ritual really going on here like what you see later. Doesn't really seem to be the case, though. I, I think we have very early on a liturgical formation within the church because it never lost it. Really, there was no disconnect between old and new in that way. And there, there's something I think that that modern American Christians often read back into the New Testament, which is a preference for informality as authentic. And and so when they hear house church, they don't hear that as, okay, well, this is the gathering space available to the church. And there's a reason that they met in wealthy people's houses because the room was large enough. And also for fear of the Jews. It's, it's a space issue. It's also a safety issue. Something about the prophets being persecuted. You know, something about that. I don't know. Some guy said it. So, <laughs> but anyway, no, no, you're right. They are reading into this, and, it, and it's seen as some kind of cozy, informal, worship-like atmosphere as they understand worship, which is this sort of environment, this vibe that they understand worship to be. It's curious how their house churches tend to look not entirely dissimilar from their regular churches, just like you say, with more furniture scattered about. Right. Yeah, they see that as somehow more authentic, like everybody was just hanging out. And and part of it, too, is they understand the Eucharist as always happening in conjunction with an actual meal. And so there it's like, okay, so we're going to like order some pizzas or or maybe roast a bird, do something kind of communal food-wise, and then that sort of accidentally or, or, or organically spills over into the celebration of the Lord's Supper somehow. That's how they see it. It's it's like a it's like a holy dinner party. And that's not really in my opinion what you see in Acts. You see them going from house to house with a specific purpose. And the specific purposes are to hear the apostles teaching, to pray the prayers and to receive the Lord's supper. Yeah, and I I think that there's also and this is not just, you know, American Protestantism. This is prevalent throughout a lot of discussion of the liturgy in the 20th century and 21st century. There is an overestimation of the Eucharist as a meal, right? Yes. But if yes. you if you look at the words of institution, 
Jesus is not primarily trying to bring people together. That is an effect of the communion that they have, but the it is for the forgiveness of sins. So right. the fact that the celebration of the Lord's Supper in a liturgical church does not resemble a family meal is not accidental. It is because it is a minister of Christ dispensing the body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. It's not so that we can all be cozy together. It would be structured very differently if that were the purpose. Anybody somewhere is listening to this podcast right now and just screaming agape feast into their into their speakers <laughs> because that's what they understand. They understand the love feast and the Eucharist to be one and the same. Right. And they understand the love feast to merely just be a big old meal. Right. So, yeah, you're right. It is different. And although we are fed on Christ's body and blood, it is not the same as a naturalistic eating. Uh, or I should say we don't eat for the same purpose, right? Right. One is is, is uh, receiving the remission of sins, strengthening of faith. The other is, is literally solely for the purpose of our physical bodies right. to sustain them. Right. So, so, there, so there is a difference in the eating there. But I want to be – and I'm careful when I'm talking about this because I don't want anyone to think that I'm saying you're only receiving something spiritually – or you're only receiving Christ's spiritual presence. That's not at all what I'm trying to communicate. I'm simply saying that there's a difference between the Baconator and the Lord's body and blood. <laughs> well, right. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 th- what, I think what we're saying is that the, the church potluck flows naturally out of the fact that people have this oneness in Christ c- created by Holy Communion. But if the church's purpose were merely horizontal fellowship, there would be better ways to accomplish that than the celebration of the Eucharist. Yeah, well, and I think that you actually hit on something there with what you just said. The potluck flows out of what happens at communion, not the other way around. Right. As the, as the as sort of the contemporary house church would say, you've got your love feast, your big meal, and then that sort of flows into the Lord's Supper, when really, no. On the basis of what Christ has done and our unity in Him, after the fact— we can sit down and share a meal together as brothers and sisters. You know, fellowship flows from what God has done for us and what God is doing for us, the Holy Trinity working within his church. And that's, that's very important. So is it safe to say that the life of the church is found in her corporate liturgical worship? Yeah. In in his three books about the church, which you know is is obviously a separate writing from the pastor, but 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 very closely connected in the sense that he's talking there about the fruit of the pastor's work. Leah describes worship as the most heavenly bloom of the life of Christ upon this earth, because what you're seeing in corporate worship is a is a foretaste of heaven. It is the presence of the Lord with his people. There it is. It is limited in duration. It's, you know, an hour and 20 minutes on a Sunday or whatever it may be. You have to break off praying. You have to break off receiving at some point. But you are you are preparing there and seeing a glimpse there of what will go on in eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth forever. I think when you're cognizant of that, certain modern obsessions with informality or immediate intelligibility or any of the other things that are, quote, liturgical priorities for a lot of people, those fall away once you understand the dimension of worship as something that is 
happens at a certain time on Sunday morning, say. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I do think accessibility is a bit overrated. I think that having that mystery there is good. I'm not saying put the rude screen back up necessarily. Well, but, I, but <laughs> you know, dust it off and bring it back. I mean, what, you know, I mean, I'm not saying I would vote no. Right. But, you know, it, <laughs> anyway, but yeah, it, there is something about the service being other and the service transcendent and us not being able to fathom all of the things that happen there. We do confess the sacraments as mysteries, do we not? So there is something at least there that we're not going to be able to, to rationalize away or can be immediately accessible to everyone. Right. And I think that that's fine. I'm not saying go back to the Latin mass or anything like that, but it's okay if elements are a bit foreign because the worship of the church is different. It is heaven on earth. It is the church militant and the church triumphant joined together in worship uh, of the only true God. And, and so why can't that be that why can't that be different if our time is to be marked differently than the world's time? And if we've set aside this space to be something entirely unique in all of the other buildings in the world, then why is the worship that takes place in there not to be at least a bit, at least in some sense, rather different and sometimes, and, and sometimes frankly mystifying in, in a good way, in, in a healthy way. Zellin, you're being awful quiet back there. <laughs> No, that's fine. I'm just listening. Just preparing for my love feast back there. <laughs> and, you know, bringing back foot washing that too. So, <laughs> Right. <laughs> we know who the real Anabaptists are. Yeah, That's right. <laughs> Zellin building Utopia up there in North Dakota. <laughs> right. New economy, please. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I guess we've talked a bit about Acts here. What else would uh, Leah have us understand? What does he say, for example, about daily worship then we we we're all good with the sunday service at least for the most part what would he say about worship the other six days this is something we touched on a little bit in the first section of the podcast he recommends that the church should begin to pray again out of matins and vespers so when we're saying daily worship we don't mean here family religion or private prayer he's talking about the public life of worship on a daily basis for a congregation. And he recommends something very similar to the rule for the Church of England, which is that there must be public daily morning and evening prayer, or usually Lutherans will call it matins and vespers, but the idea is the same. And he says that, you know, pastors should start this, and most people will never care about it, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, in a in a kind of <laughs> right. typically terse and somewhat dismissive way, Leah says, for instance, what is truly spiritual just is not for the masses. But he's okay with that. And, and so he says, you know, get the thing going and don't worry about how many people show up. Well, but think about that. That is, one, very Christian, but two, so diametrically opposed to the way we are taught to think about this. Well, if enough people aren't showing up to this service, then we either need to discontinue it or completely redo it. Right. Because right. because for some reason we're not marketing it right or we're not scheduling it right or right. something like that. Right. And for Lay, it's like, no, this is really the pastor's duty. One, to pray on behalf of the congregation. Two, it's the church's duty to worship God. So we're going to at least offer this opportunity and we're going to continue to do it. And the people who can show up will make it. The people who want to show up you know, more properly will 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 attend. And that's a much better way 
and of course not thinking of finances and things like that, but that's a much healthier way to look at that because you are less likely to fall into the trap of religious consumerism when that's your attitude. I, I think what's interesting, I mean, this is that in talking to guys, one of the things that guys like most about the seminary and I is daily corporate worship. They like that. I, I certainly enjoyed that as a seminary and I enjoy it being back here. And it's one of the things that they that they miss most about being in a parish is that they don't have that. But it's it's very infrequent if in my experience, I, I've never heard of it, for a guy to institute daily corporate worship in a parish. I guess there's a couple cases now that I say that that I have thought of. But sure. it's it's very infrequent and I think a lot of the hindrance is when the pastor thinks of himself as a marketer, and this is certainly yeah. a temptation. If nobody shows up, what am I supposed to do? And Leia's answer is do it anyway. You know? Right. <laughs> or they get the idea that, well, I'm already so busy. I don't have time for that. If we, right. let's be careful not to fall into the trap of being so busy as pastors, we can't do the work of a pastor. Right. And I realize there are shut-ins that keep us busy and there are other obligations, but the worship of the church and of course, I mean, shut-in should be a priority. I'm not saying that. But we could take a step back and look at how we're using our time. Are we truly so busy that we couldn't spare an hour? Or not even an hour. Not even, no. You're doing matins by yourself? Yeah, 20 minutes? Yeah, maybe. So yeah, I mean, there there, there are time, or excuse me, there is time every day, day to do this. It really goes back to our Gerberding episodes to some of the other Leia episodes of how to manage our time. And maybe that's the key. Let's not look at time management simply in terms of like the corporate world, you know, Oh, I'm up. I got to be up before the crack of dawn because Twitter guru says so. And, you know, or whoever, whoever, (laughs) whoever the Tony Robbins of, of of this, of this age is, you know, whatever the motivational speaker is. And then I've got to do this and do this and parse it out. Perhaps it might be better to slow down a little bit, reckon our time by the seasons and by uh, the the calendar of the church, which is not to simply say just the great feast days or the lesser feast days, but also the regular daily services of the hours. And you don't have to go with all of them, but could we at least try matins, right, or right. vespers? You know, nice. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just you know, little poco a poco, you get into it, right? And so, why not? Why not give that a shot, pastors? You know, of course, we bump into, well, we do bump into ultimately another obstacle for instituting this, and it's something that Leia talks about. Uh oh, this young pastor is trying to institute this. Clearly, he's a closet papist. He has Romanizing tendencies trying to do this, right? There's nothing new under the sun. And, and so the obstacle that we, especially um, the way our church is governed, bump into is what, guys? <laughs> Nobody wants to say it, right? Well, I'm, what, I, I'm not. I, I'm trying to pick up on where you're going. I I think that what Leia Leia assumes that Lutherans are very good at cutting things out. They are much less good at positively adding things. Right, and it's hard to convince the members of this. And a lot of times it would say, well, somebody's going to add a service, so it's got to pass through voters, and it's going to take three voters meetings to do this, that, or the other, or whatever. Not all church constitutions are the same. But this is something that pastors could just say, I'm going to be praying this at 930, right. Monday through Friday. Right. Please come and join me if you can. Yeah. 
And by all means, just be a man and, and be assertive and don't be a jerk and just say, this is what I'm offering. I promise you, nobody is going to come down too hard on you unless you're being weird with it. Hey, the, actually, you know what? I can't promise that. It, this is a fallen world. People may well come down hard on you, but at least give it a shot if you want to try it. Don't be, don't be afraid. Too many, we, we've got a lot of henpecked guys that are henpecked, uh, henpecks, a loaded term, but they're kind of browbeat by the world and they're a little bit squeamish about moving, moving towards this. But can we expect our churches, and by that I mean the church at large, to really improve apart from her liturgical life? Can we expect her to improve apart from the prayers of the pastors and of the faithful? I mean, we you know we need to we need to start thinking about this and, and wonder, you know, really where what we've lost by cutting so much out. Yeah, and it's it's really important to recognize that the terms high church and low church are not. Lutheran in origin, and they're not even helpful for Lutheran discussion of liturgy. And the reason why is that Leah is not insistent on a certain amount of ceremony in a church. His concern in thinking clearly about liturgical action and practice and speech and prayer is to build up the congregation of God in the Word of God. So, for instance, he commends that you know, don't don't come into a church and just swamp them with a ton of ceremony they've never Certainly, seen before. Yeah, absolutely. What you want to start out with is just having decency and order and simplicity and clarity in a service, right. which right. may be cluttered by all kinds of traditions of many different origins. Right. And it's good that we mention that because when we say things like give this service a shot, somebody out there is going to hear, okay, cool. Every bell and whistle I can think of and every feast day has right. to be instituted immediately. Right. It, otherwise, we're not being faithful. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah, absolutely. Because the point in everything that you're doing is the edification of God's church. And the contention here is that thinking clearly and biblically about time and space will suffuse people's lives, corporately and individually, with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And if you don't do it as the pastor— if you're not intentional about these things, nobody else is going to be. So this is a tremendous opportunity to give people Christ over and over and over again. And you have all of these wonderful resources throughout church history for doing that. Why not give it a shot? Why not take that chance to give them more of Christ than they currently have? In a world that's giving them lots of other things to pay attention to, give them Christ. Amen. Well, guys, thank you so much for your time. Adam, thanks for joining us. Congratulations on your new position. And we'll keep you in our prayers for a smooth transition and blessings to uh, the, the whole Coons clan as well. Thanks a lot. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Selwyn Heidi and Adam Kuntz. God love you and God bless. Whoever wants to pray and read in spirit and in truth, in the name of the congregation, needs above all subjective piety and spiritual practice. Whoever is not serious about his own devotion and preparation for the liturgical service will learn the least the great art of holy servants of God, to read and emphasize correctly at the altar. Whoever omits to prepare himself will soon be just a laborer at the altar, whom the Spirit will remind in his heart. 
Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps.